does the lower cost of wind energy play into the choice of it or to see it percolate towards the top? Is it really based on pricing? And natural gas is relatively cheap and stable, of course. For you. But uh, <laughs> wind, well, for, for in the, the United, United States, States it is. Yeah, some parts of Europe. <laughs> yeah, I know all the European <laughs> listeners are like, what? Moment, yeah. yeah, that is not an, not an accurate way to describe <laughs> what's going on with gas at the moment. <laughs> Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, here with the queen of composites, the doctor of blade de-icing, Dr. Rosemary Barnes. We have a great show for you today. We have a, a number of updates about the U.S. energy. Uh, wind, wind power is gradually increasing in terms of the percentage of power in total, which is really awesome. Uh, we had some blades fall off a wind turbine in, off the coast of Denmark. We'll talk about that because Rosemary's a, a, a blade expert. She hopefully provides some insights into what happened there. We also have an interview with Harriet Green of Equinor, who is working on Empire and Beacon Wind offshore wind projects and off the east coast of the United States. So it's a really good interview. Stay tuned for that. Then we talk about some blade aerodynamics, uh, how the seagull feather system is being implemented on wind turbine blades. And, and I'll ask Rosemary, does it even work? And then there's a really cool project out of Australia where they have uh, a crane where uh, they're using gyroscopes to control the loads so that the wind turbine blades don't blow around. Sort of cool tech. So let's get started. Uh, U.S. energy hits a major milestone that U.S. Uh, wind industry had its second highest source uh, uh, peak electricity uh, since we've been gathering data on it. Uh, the wind turbines in the U.S. generated 2,000 gigawatt hours of electricity, edging out nuclear and coal. There you go. But still falling behind natural gas. Natural gas in the United States is a huge energy source. Overall, last year, last year is just 2021, uh, wind energy was the fourth largest energy source behind natural gas, of course, coal and nuclear. Uh, but wind generated 380 terawatt hours for the entire year. So a terawatt hour is a lot of energy. Rosemary, do you think... Uh, as you see wind energy start to peak up in the United States, do you think that wind energy will become the number one electricity source for a significant amount of time? Ooh, I don't know. I see it. most people, I think, think that solar is going to dominate because, you know, it's, it's cheaper and it's getting cheaper faster. And I mean, the, the obvious disadvantage with solar is that it, you know, it doesn't um, make any energy when when it's nighttime, which happens every single day. <laughs> um, but battery storage and other kinds of energy storage are also getting cheaper. So I'm usually having the opposite argument with people who say, "Oh, it'll all be solar. There'll be no place for wind in the future. You're in the wrong the wrong industry." Um, and you know, I am working with solar as well, so I think I've got <laughs> I've got my bases covered. But I definitely think that you're not going to see one technology um, win. Uh, it felt like that. I know like 10 years ago or so, we were really closely watching what was happening with solar because wind, you know, had the lead. It was it was a cheaper and more mature technology 10, 20 years ago. Um, and people were a bit nervously watching the price of solar fall so, so dramatically because, I mean, you can obviously um, extrapolate from that and get to the point where you're like, well, solar energy is going to be free. Essentially it'll be the, it'll, it'll go down to the cost of the right. glass and aluminium <laughs> um, that's, that's in it. Um, but I think now everyone's aware that, you know, when you start to integrate really large amounts of variable energy in the grid, then diversity is key. And so it's not going to be 
a matter of um you know one technology winning over the other um and it's not just like diversity of technologies it's also going to be geographic diversity so you you're going to see you know wide areas connected together so yeah obviously solar gets gets a lot more useful if you've got a grid that has a a, a wide east to west span because you've got you know more daylight hours during the whole whole grid Right. And wind patterns vary from place to place. So that's why, you know, offshore wind is more expensive, but it can in a lot of ways be a lot more valuable than um, onshore wind if it correlates, um, if, well, if there's a negative correlation with other variable renewable sources. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting to see how it's. Yeah, just looking out. at the numbers here. Well, the numbers here are really interesting for this particular day in April. Uh, wind generated about 10 times as much energy as solar. So that, that's really interesting because you, I would agree with you that you would think that solar would be your primary low cost, lowest cost uh, energy source. But uh, maybe just because there's so much more wind and a major part of America is windy, it may not be as sunny. Maybe, maybe that's what it is, mm. that we're seeing a lot more energy generation by wind, which I, I think is unusual. But it, does, does the lower cost of wind energy play into the choice of it or to, to see it percolate towards the top? Is it really based on pricing? And natural gas is relatively cheap and stable, of course. For you. But uh, wind, well, for, <laughs> for in the, the United, United States, States it is. Yeah, some parts of Europe. <laughs> yeah, I know all the European <laughs> listeners are like, what? Moment, yeah. yeah, that is not an, not an accurate way to describe <laughs> what's going on with gas at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, I'll, I'll, I will grant you that. But in the United States, natural gas hasn't been such a, uh, a I've seen wide fluctuations, of course. Uh, but as wind, lowers gets lower and lower in cost I, I don't you see that it's just going to keep climbing the amount of energy produced by it because wind is cheap yeah and it will you know compared to the fossil fuels or any anything where you've got to pay for the the fuel then um yeah wind is only gonna you know be more and more competitive or you know re replace and i think the key thing is as well a gas is a really flexible um generation technology so right. that's why it's still in the game, um, despite having to pay for, for fuel, because you can, you, you know, you can use it when you need it and not when you don't. So it'll hang around a lot longer than coal, for example, where, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> you're kind of stuck, stuck with it on. If you want to have it on in the evening, then you need to have it on in the middle of the right. day, even if electricity prices are negative. Um, so that's why, you know, like in Australia, we're, we're seeing coal um, power plants closing sooner than expected. And. That's just going to happen all around the world is my um, expectation. Yeah. So the capitalist system is kind of work is going to work at some some level, right? Yeah, it's really funny. Lower cost means more of because it. Because I do say that in Australia, uh, our energy transition is such so interesting because, you know, we've been laggards on climate action the, the whole time that, you know, anyone's been paying attention. We've been our um, politicians <laughs> have, for the most part, just been trying to find loopholes and, you know, um, <laughs> All of our emissions reductions to date, practically, or the vast majority of them have come through just clearing land slightly less fast than we used to clear native um, forests. Um, so it's not exactly something to brag about, but our politicians do brag about it, <laughs> about our amazing emissions <laughs> reductions. And I always think, oh, if only we'd had the foresight to just clear a lot more land, native forest in the 90s, then we'd be doing even better by now because, you know, it would be an even bigger reduction. 
<laughs> but that said, we have uh, what I think is the fastest well, energy transition at the moment. And I, 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 I'm not like some, you know, like diehard capitalist or anything. I kind of like accept that this is a pretty efficient way to work and that it's the system we've got that's kind of, you know, describes my, my love for capitalism. I'll, I'll tolerate it. Um, but it has <laughs> our electricity market is quite free and and open and it has allowed the better technologies to take over faster than it has in countries where it's really centrally controlled and i know a lot of the u.s grids are 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 like that they're you know centrally controlled and there's like a government operated or government controlled monopoly um and they're very conservative and they they don't just you know let let things happen happen fast so so in this case i I do think (laughs) for the electricity grids a large part of decarbonisation can be solved by, you know, just making sure that the market is um, is free to choose the best technologies. Because you know, engineers like us have gotten us to the point where those technologies are just are just cheaper. <laughs> so one of the big uh, efforts in the United States is offshore wind, obviously, uh, and we're following the lead of of many European countries on, on offshore wind. Uh, over the past roughly a week or so ago. Uh, one of the offshore wind turbines off the coast of Denmark at the largest wind facility off the coast of Denmark and I guess the third largest offshore wind facility in the world in Anholt. And I don't know where Anholt is. I know it's a little island off the coast of Denmark. And have have you been there before, Rosemary? Have you been up that way? Uh, no, I'll just look it up on a map and uh, then I'll I'll see, see where it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's a huge facility. It's a it, uh, it's a one of Orsted's 400 megawatt Anholt offshore wind farm, and they're investigating an incident where a turbine lost three of its blades, and it sounds like the rotor uh, fell into the water. Now that that for there's 111 wind turbines on this farm, so it's a massive farm. So losing one wind turbine made no difference in terms of power output for the most part. Uh, but it, obviously. It became a real safety critical event, and uh, uh, there seems to be a lot going on just trying to figure out what happened here. Uh, Rosemary, I mean, how how else do you lose three blades simultaneously without losing the hub and the the rotor? It seems like it has to go together somehow. Yeah, I think so. If they didn't all fall together, then you would have also seen the tower collapse. You would expect, like, if you get a um, an unbalanced uh, okay. rotor spinning around, then that's very quickly yeah. going to cause problems for every other part of the wind turbine. So if it was just the blades falling off, then it must have, yeah, also included the hub, I would, I would suggest, because they must have all fallen off at the exact same time. Okay, so that, that's, that was my thought too, that this, this is not a blade issue as much as it is a, a hub rotor issue somewhere in there would have, would have been the issue. And I guess it raises the question about wind turbine maintenance. O- offshore is so much more difficult than onshore and and we're still developing all the techniques and all the safety protocols and, and the routines of inspecting wind turbines now that this wind turbine farm i think started in 2013 so it's going on nine ten years old uh and they've they've had issues on the wind farm previously back in 2018 and 2017 they replaced uh 80 or they took off 87 of the blades and repaired them for i assume was leading edge erosion from what it sounds like so the, the um, OEM pulled the blades off, fixed the blades onshore, put the blades back on. So they have been on and off those turbines a good bit uh, doing blade maintenance. Again, another uh, series of learning experiments, I guess, just because you, know, you don't know and how what it's going to look like until you put it in service and 
in such a large quantity. Are, 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 we, are we starting to get a little bit smarter? I mean, can we use this previous data that's happening on these wind farms that have aged 10 years to develop, when we develop new wind farms and new wind turbines, are we taking that knowledge base and, and applying it to these, these yeah, newer I wind mean, turbines? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, for a company, that's very important that they, that they do that. But, you know, when you have your very first wind farm of a new kind of um, turbine, then you have to set aside a, a relatively large warranty provision, you know, so you, you set, set aside a, a pool of money that is sitting there in case that there's a, a warranty claim. And yeah, the more risky that your technology is, the higher the percentage is that has to be set aside. And I think it's legally mandated that it's, you know, actually a separate pool. It's not just that, um, you know, it's notionally set aside, but you continue to spend the money on, um, on operational stuff. So the companies care about minimizing that amount of money because, you know, it affects their balance sheet. Um, and then sure. they work hard to make sure that yeah. they can reduce that, that number moving forward. Um, so they'll definitely be taking uh, all of the learnings that they can um, and any, any warranty claims that are, are made or any major incidents that they, um, you know, have to do a root cause mm. analysis for. That's going to filter through to not just that specific turbine, but, you know, through to everything. And it will include, you know, maintenance manuals and, um, yeah, uh, all those sorts of things. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Sure. And, and is, do you think that they'll end up with more inspections? Now, th this obviously is a, is a semi-big deal, right? So do you foresee that we're going to, they're going to have to get back out in all the remaining 110 turbines and do inspections on them? Is that going to be forced upon them to do that? Is the insurance company going to I force them to do that? I would that they would do that. Yes, I would do it. <laughs> if I didn't know why a whole rotor fell off okay. a, a turbine, then you're probably going to be, you know, doing some sort of preemptive action in the rest of the farm. It doesn't mean that you have to shut shut the whole thing down, but, you know, you might um, be, be watching a bit a bit closer. Right. Agreed. You might, um, you know, limit the conditions that it's operating in or, or something until you start to get some idea of what happened. But obviously, I mean, let's, I, I'm imagining in my mind, and I obviously don't know what the cause was, but I'm imagining that, you know, there was some like torque check mm -hmm. that wasn't done on some bolts or, you know, something like that. I think it's, um, that, that seems to be the most, most likely thing to just see it happen to one. And after 10 years, that's not, like an, normally right. when you see failures um, because, you know, it's a design problem or a manufacturing problem, like a serial thing, you see a lot right at the start and um, mm -hmm. then you'll see less throughout the main lifetime and then towards the end of the lifetime you'll see more failures again. So I think they call it the bathtub sure. curve because it's like, you know, a lot at the start and then dips down and then comes back up again. So we're like right in the, <laughs> you know, in the nice part of yep. the, the bathtub curve um, at 10 years. <laughs> so you would be looking for what's something that happened to this turbine that didn't didn't happen to everything else and um yeah the most obvious like the nicest problem that you would hope to find would be that they just forgot to do maintenance on that one one year but you know there's records of maintenance being done on all the other ones so you know you you're feeling safe um you always you sure. always when you're doing a root cause analysis you're always hoping it's like a, a couple of failure modes it's like oh well, this would be this would be very self-contained and and certain and easy to to remedy so you're always kind of like hoping for those those easy causes, um, it doesn't usually end up like that. Not in the ones I've had experience with anyway, which is a shame, but no, usually but the not. fact that they're not freaking out more <laughs> does suggest to me that they immediately had an idea that it was limited to this one turbine. Um, because if you've got a whole wind farm of 111 where the rotors might mm. just start flying off, well, I mean, 
nobody is going to risk that that happening. I, I think I read that their stock price dipped on this news significantly, like from one rotor falling off. Imagine a whole a whole wind farm's rotors just start flying off willy nilly. I mean, <laughs> I'd sell my sh- oh, my shares yeah. too. No, no. <laughs> Yeah. That, that would be a problem. Yeah. So I think they got an incentive to. <laughs> yeah, the, the stock price took had a temporary dip. It wasn't permanent. It came back up because I think everybody realized it's one turbine out of yeah. thousands. Everybody, calm down. Things happen. It's it's not all that bad. But I do think you do raise a good point though that one of the from the safety side they did uh, consider it to be a real safety risk and they didn't want anybody sailing close to the turbines if they had another one because it, that would be a much more catastrophic incident. Because no one was hurt when this rotor fell off. Big deal, right? Uh, but, and playing on the safety side, I think this is smart. They actually uh, put perimeters around it, like basically no sale zones around a total of eight wind farms, some in the UK, some in Germany and, and Denmark, of course, uh, to prevent boats from traveling through there. And my first thought was, well, that, you know, how big of a deal could that be? But some of these, the, these wind farms are big. Uh, the Anholt wind farm is 34 square miles. So, that's a 34 square mile of ocean that you're no longer going to pass through. Is that, I, I guess that makes sense though, Rosemary, doesn't, doesn't it, to, to put some sort of safety boundary for the time being while you're trying to get to root cause analysis just to play it safe well, for a little while? Yeah, it does make sense. I'm actually surprised that, uh, how close can you normally sail to them? Because, I mean, on a land-based wind farm, you don't, you can't just go up and stand underneath a wind turbine that's operating. Uh, even you know, even staff of the wind farm that are there to do maintenance, they shut it down before they approach it. You just you don't you don't stand under it. That's like, definitely not going to. Even though the blades almost never fall off, you you still you, you don't. Um, so <laughs> so I'm surprised if they let just members of the public sail right up and underneath them. I, that sounds like a terrible idea to me. Um, so no, I I. I have seen pictures of, of boats traversing through the wind farms. And I, I've seen it in the United States off Block, in Block Island, which is the only real offshore wind farm. It's like five or six turbines. There are uh, water cruises. You take boat cruises out to get you fairly close to the wind turbines. Not, obviously, you can't get on the wind turbine base, but, but like directly, it's fairly close. Not Maybe not directly underneath, underneath okay. of it. If it's not sure. directly underneath, then no, I'm, I'm okay with that. No, but, no, I mean, no. obviously, I mean, I'm not a sailor. I don't know how hard it is to navigate, yeah. but it seems to me like it would be complicated to, you know, weave your <laughs> way through a wind farm without going directly under a rotor. Obviously, like the huge offshore wind turbines, there's like 10, 12 megawatt ones. There's a lot of space in between those. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of yeah. space. Well, they usually say like five or six diameters um, in between, and so you know that's yeah, that's yeah, like a yeah <laughs> a kilometer and a half. <laughs> it's a lot of space. Yep. Yeah, roughly, <laughs> or roughly well, a mile, right. as we say. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think this makes sense, and and uh, I, hopefully they get to their RCA pretty quickly, and and everybody can move on because I think you're right. It's probably a one-off weird thing that happened with this particular tournament is it very 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 likely almost zero chance that it's something endemic to the design so that that's good so uh we're going to take a quick break here after this quick break uh we're going to have an interview with harriet green from equinor so stay tuned ping monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground 
but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. All right, Harriet, thanks for joining the Uptime Podcast. This is going to be a really interesting interview. I've been wanting to talk with somebody who is actually working in offshore wind in the United States, but you've actually uh, worked in the United States and in the UK. And maybe you want to just introduce yourself uh, as your expertise, because you're an operations manager with Ecuador on some really big projects in the United States. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Lovely to be speaking to you. Um, so yeah, my name is Harriet Green. I'm the operations manager for Empire Wind and Beacon Wind, which are two projects we're developing off the east coast of the US. Uh, there's no actual projects in the water yet. Um, so we're really in the preparation phase. Um, so you'll also you know, hear us referred to as prepare for operations uh, as, as part of the project phase of this development. Um, so that's really about delivering everything we're going to need for the, the long-term operations. Um, but a lot of those decisions actually have to be made now. And I think people don't necessarily appreciate how early um, some of the decisions get made that are going to impact the way we operate these projects for the next, you know, 30 years. Um, so that's that's really my role within the projects. And you're right, I've come from the UK, um, currently living in, in New York. Um, but my experience is actually from the UK offshore wind industry, where I've worked for almost a decade. So hopefully bringing some good experience over the Atlantic. So because as you mentioned, there's, there's two big projects going on, Empire Wind and Beacon Wind, which are some of the, the larger projects going to be off the coast of, of New York, uh, where you've moved to, obviously. What stages are those projects in today? We're, how far along in the sort of regulatory application process are you? Yeah, good question. So um, we've got two lease areas, which are split in each of those are split into two different um, project developments. So we've got Empire Wind 1 and Empire Wind 2. Both of those do have offshore take agreements um, with the state of New York. Uh, so that is uh, really uh, heading into the permitting phase. So we've uh, submitted our COP. We are working hard towards Article 7. Um, Beacon Wind, so again, split into two phases, Beacon Wind 1, Beacon Wind 2. We have an off-take agreement for Beacon Wind 1, um, and we are preparing uh, some of those high-level permitting documents now. Um, but uh, Beacon Wind 2, we are still uh, awaiting a, uh, an offtake for uh, the second second project. So what, what does Article 7 mean in terms of the, the phases that you have to go through? So I, I think if, and I, I'm a citizen of the United States, so I kind of watch these projects just as a sideline. It's really hard to understand the, the stages of development that actually happen. And, it is, and there's, I think, a general assumption in the United States that uh, there's just a perm, a, a bid, an auction that, that the, the site is purchased and wind turbines just start appearing in the water. That's really far from the case, correct? Yeah, correct. These can actually be a, be a very long time between um, bidding and winning a lease area to actually getting turbines in the water. 
And a lot of that is driven by the permitting processes in different countries, and they do vary wildly. Um, in the US, you've got your federal permitting and your state permitting, uh, which was definitely a complexity that uh, I've grown to appreciate since being in the US. Um, so where our projects are, once you've, you've kind of got your offtake agreements, uh, you've got your contracts for your different projects, you um, have to say how you are going to responsibly develop these projects and that comes in the form of a construction and operations plan um, which we uh, have actually received for Empire Wind 1 and 2 our notice of intent from the US Department of the Interior in June last year which is is great and what that really does is um, shows how we're going to be following all uh, local uh, so state and federal uh, environmental uh, considerations uh, and we're going to be minimizing our impacts on these areas that we're building the projects just to to put it very um very simply sure sure and, and there's there obviously there's, there must be a lot to that because you know, the coast of new york is a big sailing area a big fishing area and and some of the beaches may be sensitive there too the turbines you're going to put out in the water have you have you announced what kind of turbines you're going to put out there for empire wind we have yes so uh it was quite highly anticipated uh, but we did make an announcement last year that we have selected Vestas uh, turbines the 15 megawatt um, geared turbines that will be the uh, technology for our Empire Wind project uh, and we're still in the early phases of that process for Beacon Wind so we don't know yet uh, what we're going to have uh, out in the water for Beacon Wind. Sure. So a 15 megawatt turbine would be by far the largest turbine in the United States, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, and I, I guess you can see in the in the press what other projects are announcing in terms of what suppliers and what size turbines they're going to use. But yes, these are definitely uh, some of the largest. Yeah. So that that's a, it's, a, it's a lot of engineering. There's a lot of planning obviously involved into to getting such a large project even off the ground and, and even getting through the permitting process. So there's just a lot of work there. And your previous experience was in the United Kingdom, where there has been much more uh, onshore and offshore wind development and very successfully, I should note. Uh, what are some of the things, because you have 10 years experience in the industry and in, mainly in the UK, what are some of those things you, you bring from the UK to the United States in terms of uh, approaches, uh, technical knowledge, uh, problems that got solved? What are, what are some of those things that help Equinor do these big projects off the United States? So certainly for the areas that I'm responsible, uh, one of the biggest things that we bring is probably the operational experience. Uh, and this is this is true across, across any industry. There's a lot you gain from having that feedback loop from seeing the real-time, real-life operations and the product of what's been delivered and identifying what maybe did work, what didn't work, um, what it actually looks like as an end product, being able to feed that back into the early concept and design phases uh, is, is really key. And we don't really have that opportunity to do that just within the US because there's no existing operational assets to be able to take those, uh, those lessons from. So that's definitely one thing I'd say we, um, we are bringing you know, both for operations and across the project team, really um, actually having examples, real life projects that we can draw from uh, bringing the experience. 
But otherwise, yeah, there's a lot we've learned um, and we can see is different from the way that regulations have developed. So in Europe, it did take some time for offshore wind specific uh, regulations. And, you know, again, that is very country dependent. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of developments still ongoing, really. There's a history from offshore oil and gas um, and from onshore wind. A lot of the regulations uh, and technical uh, requirements, particularly around safety, that have drawn on other similar industries. You see a lot of influence from the aviation industry coming into the way that wind farms and offshore wind farms are, are developed and, and operated. Um, and I think we'll see the same for the US, but we may have a slight advantage where as they're being developed for the US, there are already experienced developers, operators, uh, a lot of experience in, in the supply chain uh, that can really help that development happen faster. So that maturity um, that we need to get to in terms of having proper governance for an industry, uh, I think we'll, we'll get to that point in a much more informed way from bringing lessons from elsewhere, um, you know, across the UK and Europe and other regions that have more developed offshore wind industries. And the, you mentioned oil and gas and New York has not had any offshore oil and gas. And so from, from New York's perspective, they're starting with a clean sheet. They really need to have expertise from people like you to help with the regulatory aspects because everything is new. Is is in Equinor, but Equinor also brings just a lot of experience in total because they've have so many projects worldwide. Do does the local, state, and federal regulators uh, is that relationship meshing in a sense that uh, they realize that they don't have a lot of experience in offshore wind? Why would they? Uh, that they that they need to draw from the the, the experience group of of operators and installers that are located off the shoreline? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing that there is an appreciation for that just in some of the forums that exist and some of the industry groups that are being engaged in those discussions. Um, so we do see, you know, from our uh, other uh, competitors and collaborators in the industry um, that there is a lot of engagement as well with various authorities um, and within various uh, key industry forums. So I think that's a real positive that we can see that that is happening. Um, and the IPF coming up, you look at what's on the agenda there. I think there's an incredible amount of collaboration across across all parts of the industry. So um, I think there's there's a lot of optimism around how we can all work together to, to get to the point we need to. Well, I would hope so because we have a really short time frame. If we're, you're part of the 30 gigawatts by 2030 effort, and your projects are kind of pushing towards 2030 just because of the all the newness of this, I, I assume that's part of it. Just in the United States, it's a lot of it so new. You're just trying to get the wind turbines, get the regulations straightened out, make sure everything's in place before you uh, really get moving. So every, your time scale is getting compressed very rapidly. It's, it seems like, but in the United States, there's there's a big drive for wind, like there is everywhere else, and it, that expertise is going to make a huge difference. And United States maybe being last to the party pretty much on offshore wind is probably going to take advantage of expertise from people like you just because you have all the knowledge and it's good that you've actually moved to the United States because we need your knowledge to get this project done. So it's fantastic. And your, your, your background is as a mechanical engineer, right? You're a mechanical engineer by training. How much of your mechanical engineering training do you do 
or you do you use every day in in your operations role? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I did. I trained as an engineer, mechanical engineer, and that's actually how I first entered the industry. I was working in day to day operations and maintenance uh, as a mechanical engineer. Um, a lot of contract management, uh, a lot of you know contractor uh, engagement and support. Um, but then a lot of uh, back office technical support as well. So really regarding the long-term technical integrity, root cause analysis, um, looking at failure modes, maintenance engineering, uh, you know, how we can be more proactive in terms of the way that we um, look for and evaluate failures, uh, monitor, um, so condition monitoring. So I, I actually used it uh, quite a lot in previous roles. This role is more um, sort of project management. Um, so I do also have qualifications in project management. Um, so I'm more using those those qualifications and experiences these days, but it definitely helps to have that on the ground experience having worked on the assets. And it's not just turbines, it's substations as well, it's cables. Um, We've got onshore and offshore assets. So again, having worked onshore and offshore, um, seen the challenges, not just from a technical perspective, but from a health and work environment perspective, from a safety perspective, when that all comes together during design and you're only looking at projects on paper, it's really helpful to have that context, uh, to have physically been there and seen it and um, to be able to translate what you're seeing on paper to practical considerations and, and challenges that you will find uh, later uh, if you if you get it wrong now. So yeah, to some extent, I uh, don't use my mechanical engineering quite so much these days, but it definitely does help when we're doing technical due diligence of uh, different supplier systems uh, to still have that grounding in, in an engineering background. Sure. Like you said, you have, there is so much to a project that we don't really think about you mentioned the undersea cables and the substations. Those are major parts of an offshore wind development that on onshore, you don't really even think that much about because it's relatively easy to go do those things. But installing a substation out in the water is not easy. Putting a bunch of cable underwater is not easy either. So it's a, you must have a combination of good personal skills, being able to deal with people and manage people at the same time, having your little mechanical engineering filter to know when things are going awry and when, when to say stop and when to say go. That's a, that's a unique combination. Is that just developed over time as an experience and just being around it? Yeah, definitely. I've absorbed a lot of what I've learned since working in the industry. There's some things that I, you know, I've taken on as extra study. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at, you know, certain mechanical systems, um, did a lot of work on gearboxes, uh, when you're, having to work more with, uh, you know, gearbox problems or just general understanding how to be better at maintaining and foreseeing problems. Um, you know, main bearings, blades was a particular um, topic that I was uh, very interested in and very deep into for quite some time. Um, so I did have particular areas that I developed much more knowledge um, through more formal training on the job. But then others, you just you pick up as you go along, particularly some of the operational challenges. Um, you you kind of see things from day to day and you start to get an understanding of what's important, um, but also what's difficult, uh, what needs improving. 
you just pick up as you go along really and then try as best you can to to feed those lessons back well i think you know you're in an interesting space right now because you moved from the uk to new york essentially where there is no offshore wind and uh, you, you bring this vast knowledge over to the United States. Thank you very much. But you, you're going to need a, a, a great number of employees to, to, to get the operation up and running, right? You, you, you do have to bring on all your support people, all your supply chain, all your procurement groups. Uh, there's, it just seems like you have a massive task to do. What, we can just kind of walk through on the we got to get people side what that process looks like and how you're going to be able to get turbines in the water in a couple of years? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And one that I think uh, is being asked uh, across the industry, um, you know, not just within Equinor, we will be directly employing people ourselves. We will also have a lot of suppliers um, that are delivering some of the key parts of our project that we will be relying on. And they will also need people to be able to deliver to the projects. Um, so for us, what that largely means for the operations, a lot of construction type jobs, particularly onshore, are very transferable. Um, so a lot of the, you know, the building trades, uh, a lot of the engineering will be very transferable from other industries. Um, so I think we'll probably see a lot of workforce development that way. But when it comes to the operations, uh, again, there will still be a lot of transferable skills. Um, there's a lot of roles that won't really change. We will still need um, on-site security. We'll still need administrators, um, you know, right down to, to things like, you know, cleaners and, and building facilities management, which won't change. So we think those will be um, existing skills in the areas that we're, we're building that we can draw from. The challenges come with the more specialized uh, jobs. So more of your offshore technicians, um, where you do need a little bit more specialist understanding and knowledge of the particular systems and assets that we're going to be managing and maintaining. Um, control room operators, you know, is a good example that's that's actually quite quite specialised. So really, what we're trying to do at the moment is um, look at what that's going to mean for us. What does our organisation organisation need to look like? to be able to run a wind farm. That we can definitely take the experience from our existing operations elsewhere. We know what kind of processes we need to follow, what sort of tasks are going to exist on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we know what the involvement needs to be from our back office support engineer, uh, support organization, such as finance, procurement, um, you know, even uh, legal support we might need um, when we're you know, writing and managing contracts. So we can gauge a lot of the tasks and a lot of the workforce needs that way. But then when it comes to really seeing what those jobs, what the um, existing competence and experience requirements are that we need to ask for when putting those jobs out to the market, that's where we're trying to be a little bit more careful um, and not just take a copy paste. When you're looking at uh, education and qualifications, there is a slight difference. When you're looking at what it means to have apprenticeships and internships, again, they don't necessarily directly translate from what we see in the UK, from what we see in, in Norway. Um, so we need to be careful that we're not putting unrealistic expectations onto these job roles 
that alienates the people that we're trying to target. So we are um, looking at local hiring. We are looking at particularly the communities that we're going to be embedded within and, you know, creating a symbiosis with. Um, so what we really want to do is uh, complete all the groundwork, understand what the current context is for those areas. What are the barriers to entering the workforce? What are the challenges to diversity and inclusivity um, to make sure that when we do write those job descriptions and define what we're going to ask for, we're making it as possible um, and accessible as we can for those groups to actually um, have these opportunities, to be able to apply for these opportunities. Um, so that's where we're maybe not in too much of a rush. We don't want to rush to judgment on those uh, and just copy paste from what we've done elsewhere. Um, so that's really what our, our task is this year, um, is much more of a scoping phase, um, making sure we fully understand and listen to the local communities as well. There's a lot of engagement that we're doing to to actually just hear what's what's being said and what the priorities are for some of these communities to make sure that we're positioning ourselves uh, in the best way possible. Well, you're in a very diverse area of the United States. There's there's all kinds of talent really close to these offshore wind projects. I think finding people, you, you would think it'd be somewhat easy, but I think you nailed it on the head, actually, that finding those specific technical skills are going to be very difficult. And that's something that's going to have to be developed locally because trying to find an offshore wind technician in the United States, that's just not really a, a, a job right now. It's, or very few people would have that job. So if you want to, to do some of the more technical things, I think it's going to have to be homegrown, which is great for the local community. So if you happen to live in the general vicinity of some of these wind projects, there, there's maybe a lot of opportunities there. I know the National Renewable Energy Laboratory just put out a report that said there's going to be somewhere in between twelve and 50,000 new jobs just for these offshore wind projects along the east coast of the United States. That's a great opportunity, and some of these jobs are very high-paying. I think one of the they mentioned was uh, a uh, basically construction jobs that are about $70,000 a year. That's a really good-paying job for for. Uh, that type of work. So there is, seems like a, a huge potential uh, and to get involved in, in offshore wind. And, you know, w what kinds of things are Equinor going to bring to the table here? Are, are, are there some, you talked about some of the training that needs to be done. Are some of the local community colleges and some of the training institutes, particularly in New York, New Jersey, starting to ramp up and wanting to support these offshore wind projects or in, in, in the state? Is the state of New York stepping into that too? Yeah, there's lots of groups actually clamoring to be part of this transition. So we are seeing that from um, the SUNY and CUNY areas, um, you know, also the, the different unions um, with, you know, training through unions. Um, so there's lots of, uh, lots of players here that, you know, will be very valuable to um, training and developing a workforce that's right for this industry. I think it's about just having a better understanding all around of what it's going to take. So for us, from an Equinor standpoint, we're wanting to, as I said, get it right from the ground up. So once we identify exactly what those jobs are going to look like, we'll be able to do a gap analysis as well. What do we think the base level of knowledge needs to be? What does the base level of training need to be? 
And then we can start to look at which um, organizations are offering that training. Are there enough organizations offering that training? Is there additional training we need to be offering ourselves in-house? Are there training providers we can work with to, um, to develop the right training that then fills those gaps between what we're seeing is already being available, what is already transferable from other industries, and maybe what we need to do just to just to get people that final step. And and it is a it's a big undertaking for for people. It takes a lot of courage to pivot towards a new industry that there is no experience of, whether you are picking what subjects to study at school to get ready for a job in this industry or whether you're going back to the workforce after a break and you want to try something new or if you know do you do have existing skills but you want to try a new industry it takes quite a leap of faith to to jump from something you're comfortable with and you're used to to start in a new industry you know regardless but then particularly when it's an industry that is still undergoing such a significant development and maturation it's going to take take a lot for people to to feel comfortable to do that to take that that leap so I guess we just want to make sure that people understand the jobs that are going to be available um, at the end of that journey that they're not um, you know taking such a big risk if there's actually going to be an industry here for for when they land um, that they can actually find jobs within. So basically, go online, Google it, Google Equinor, check out what job postings there are. I think that makes a lot of sense because if you are interested in, interested in renewable energy, if you want to think about a possible career there, that's a great place to start because there's Equinor is just one of many that are going to be along the eastern seaboard of the United States. There'll be a lot of opportunities coming up, and it, 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 the well-paying jobs, they, they are are professional positions, it's a good opportunity for a lot of younger people to get involved renewable. And I think that's very admirable. And I, I hope everybody does take your advice and go online and check out those jobs and, and see uh, what, what there is uh, coming up, because there's going to be, like I said, up, up to 50,000 jobs in the, in, the, in the surrounding community just for offshore wind. And that, that's fantastic. So, uh, Harriet, I, I really appreciate your time uh, because I'm learning so much about these offshore projects and you being an experienced offshore person is, it's fantastic. And, and we really thank you for coming on the show and we'd love to have you back at, at any time. So, uh, Harriet, thanks so much. Everybody check out Equinor, check out, look for new jobs with Equinor because the beacon wind and the empire wind are going to be great offshore products. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. I've been doing a little bit of reading on aerodynamic airfoils and all these improvements that could be made. And the the one I keep seeing pop up on um, Google searches and that sort of thing is the, this sort of uh, seagull approach to wind turbines or seagull approach to wind turbine blades, where I guess the seagull's got some sort of weird feather manipulation going on. And I, I, I've been trying to understand it, but, but maybe you can explain it to everybody because I don't understand yeah, all the sure. aspects I, to I it. I think it's nice that the seagulls are getting their time in the in the sun for now. You know, it's not normally a bird that people are inspired <laughs> by. Uh, have you seen Finding Nemo, uh, you know, the film with the lost fish? Uh, I- <laughs> We're an American, so yes, okay. we've seen it many, many times. So you know they, they end up yes. in, in Australia, right? <laughs> and um, there's 
seagulls in it and all the yeah. other animals in the the film like talk and have intelligent <laughs> conversations and whatever and all the seagulls say is mine 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 and yeah that's basically it they're always just squabbling over over hot chips um french fries i think you you would call them <laughs> uh, so yeah they don't like they're like a, a step up from a pigeon i guess um but only one uh, that would be <laughs> That would be most people's opinion in Australia of a seagull. So nice to see their, their time to shine. Um, and this is a question that I get asked a lot. A lot of people come to me, um, you know, I get approached by a lot of uh, inventors. Um, and one really common category of inventions is, oh, I have this um, high lift aerofoil. Um, and, you know, we can improve or, or they've read a paper about a high lift aerofoil. Oh, they should use this in um, wind turbine blades. It, you know, improves lift by 10%. So you'll get 10% more power. And it definitely doesn't work like that. Um, and it's a little bit complicated to explain why. So maybe this is an opportunity <laughs> to try and do that. The seagull has, if anybody's watched a seagull while they're sitting on the ocean and seeing their, their wings are pretty complex, right? They, there seems like there's a lot going on with a seagull, what, what part of the seagull are they trying to uh, drag into the wind turbine blade design I'm world? I'm not 100% sure, uh, to be honest. And it's one of those things, it, it reminds me a bit of the tubercle um, idea, or I've seen, um, which is the bumps on a killer whale's fin. And I've seen people say that they, you know, designed a wind turbine that was inspired by hummingbirds. And that it's really trendy to say something is, you know, biomimetic or inspired by nature. Um, but I think one thing like the test that i use when i'm assessing whether that's that's cool because there's so many cool nature inspired inventions you know like um shark skin the surface of shark skin mm. is great for reducing um skin friction drag and um you know like a honeycomb structure is an excellent excellent lightweight um structural core material but you have to look at what nature is trying to achieve with its design and do you need that in the thing that <laughs> that you're trying to use it for so in the case of a seagull, you know, like they're, they're, you know, agile, they're changing direction a lot. They've got to do a lot of different things with their wings. But um, a wind turbine, at least a horizontal axis wind turbine, doesn't need to do a lot of things <laughs> with, its, with its wings. It just does one thing. They spin around and they make, um, yeah, they, they generate lift across the, the surface. And then that lift, because it's rotating around a central axis, the lift makes a torque that, you know, can drive a generator and you get energy. Um, and if you design your blade right. right, which the, you know, every wind turbine that you can buy out there, all the major ones, they are designed right. They're, they're very efficient. The angles um, that, you know, the aerodynamic flow, it's the same at any wind speed. They change the speed of the turbine um, so that, you know, it rotates faster in fast wind and slower in slow wind. And so you always have the same angle of attack along all the way along the blade. The blade's twisted so that the angle of attack stays constant the whole way along. Um, and it's always operating in nice, uh, you know, okay. close to optimal conditions. So one of the benefits that this seagull wing design is supposed to have is excellent behavior around the stall angle. Um, so, you know, post stall behavior is better. It's got um, a higher lift coefficient. And um, yeah, they've got some, some advantages going through the stall okay. point. But a horizontal axis wind turbine, a modern one, never operates anywhere near the the um, the stall angle. I mean, so you, you've got a horrible, just terrible design if you're trying to operate anywhere near stall. What you're trying to do with the wind turbine blade is to operate at the maximum mm. lift to drag coefficient. It's not the lift that you want to increase. It's you want a lot of lift and okay. very little drag. So 
this device will almost certainly uh, increase the drag at the same time as it's increasing the lift. So you're going to end up overall with, you know, something that's not as as helpful as you might think if you were just looking looking at the lift. Um, yeah, and I think that one aspect of it that or one application that could be interesting is if you used it on a vertical axis wind turbine because those are constantly going through the stall angle. You know, the angle is changing, the angle of attack is changing the, as it rotates around. And so that has been a problem with vertical axis sure, wind turbines sure. in the past is this dynamic stall where, you know, you've got constantly changing and, and like violent turbulence <laughs> happening along the blade. That was really difficult structurally for the blades to deal with. So I can see some some potential for a huh. device like this that has better stall behavior it might be um good to apply to a vertical axis wind turbine so doesn't it doesn't it seem like the seagull is application into the wind turbine world is really complicated to put essentially moving feathers on a wind turbine blade seems complicated how would you even really implement the yeah design i think that that's that? probably maybe even the most significant thing so if you accept that there is some theoretical benefit to a vertical axis wind turbine and if you know you are keen to develop a vertical axis wind turbine for some reason then th this would be worth looking into and i think the first problem that you would encounter would be yeah one how to make it and attach it but two the major thing is it's gonna uh, you know how, how long is it gonna stay on there because um yeah anybody who's ever tried to put something flexible in or around a wind turbine blade discovers that those things just <laughs> anything flexible breaks. That's, <laughs> that's just the reality of it. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know what a flag looks like after a year or so flapping around in, in the breeze, in the breeze, you know, and it's so light, it's not doing sure. anything. It doesn't have <laughs> many loads on it, but just from that turbulence, that constant, yeah, Every load. <laughs> Right. The constant flapping, um, you know, they tear themselves apart. And I think you're definitely going to see the, the same thing um, on this blade. So oh, on a blade that has like seagull, seagull features. Um, yeah. So I think that that we're probably some way away from, you know, the materials, <laughs> material science being at the point where, you know, when they design a, an, a flag that lasts, you know, 20 years in, in the weather without deteriorating, that'll be the same time as we can see um yeah we're ready to apply a flexible a flexible device to the outside of a wind turbine blade and, and think it's going to last long enough to you know pay pay for itself to you know through improved performance yeah so i think what you're saying rosemary is maybe a good idea on paper but implementing it is where engineering has to take place and it's almost impossible to to make that reality now and i I, I want to I want to talk to you today about a, a second thing I've seen, which is uh, a heavy lift gyroscopic lifting device. And, it, and the reason I saw it was because it was based out of Australia. I, you're going to ask me where in Australia. I'm going to tell you I don't remember. But there, as you know, Australia makes a lot of heavy industry equipment, and they're, they're lifting heavy objects because that's what Australians do, evidently. And the, I saw this really interesting thing from Verton, which is a sort of a gyroscopic uh, lifting device such that uh, when they're lifting wind turbines up, they obviously where you put a wind turbine up and put up wind turbine blades, it's pretty windy usually, that it prevents the, the load from spinning around in the wind. And I thought, oh, that, that's pretty cool. So have, have you seen this technology I before? I you, you showed me, but I think it's, it's cool and I would love to see it in action. So anyone from Verton that's listening, <laughs> get, get in touch and give me a demo, please. 
Um, but it does seem to be solving a, a problem. And you're right that Australia, you know, does love a, a big construction project. Or yeah. We're very, very good at, at that. And if you're looking for jobs in the renewable energy um, area in in Australia, you're going to find yourself most likely working on construction or um, project management of construction. Uh, that was that was a problem that I ran into when I moved back here. And one of the large mm. reasons why I uh, started my own company was because I'm not so drawn to construction projects myself. I like the technology, the earlier earlier stage. But it, it solves a problem because, you know, at the moment you've got you've got weather windows for construction. You can't, um, you know, install it. Uh, you can't, you know, haul your turbine right. blades or any of the big components. You can't haul them up if it's very, very windy. Um, and we, I think we saw, didn't we cover a, probably a few months ago, somebody was um, installing an offshore, an offshore turbine and one of the blades just, you know, fell off the, the crane as they were installing it, just crashed into the, into the ship. Oh, yeah. that's I right. I mean, that's what you're, you're trying to, yes, that's you're right. trying to avoid, yes. you know, because the, obviously the blades are designed to, you know, catch the wind. And so if the, the wind is, um, the wind is high. Um, well, first of all, you got problems for your, your crane. Cranes don't like to operate in in high wind conditions. But then, yeah, even at lower wind speeds, you might catch the blade right. and have it just, you know, like take off into into the crane or somewhere that you didn't want. And yeah, so I think solutions to you know expand the the window of wind speeds that you can install in that's that's useful. I, I think it's a real a real choke point at the moment in um, Australia's energy transition. Is there's is um, yeah there's these constraints on you know construction getting the construction projects done in time um and you know there's also you know some equipment shortages it's hard to get the big mm. cranes and um stuff like that so if you need it for less time because you know you've got less uh, less times when you won't be able to work because the wind is high then i think that's really going to help um and also yeah bring costs down if you don't need to need to have the crane for so many days well, I was also wondering if if this sort of technology, because it's it's, it's using momentum essentially, uh, rotation momentum, that they can rotate a wind turbine blade or a heavy load very slowly in, in a controlled way because you'd either speed up or slow down the gyros inside, so it it would want to conserve momentum, so it will it will rotate around. And I always wonder if you're hanging, you know, two hundred feet off the deck of a on a in a nacelle, you're trying to bolt on a blade that sort of mating the bolts to the hub gets really difficult. I don't even know how they line it up today. It seems like you would need this Verton machine to sort of control it enough where you could actually get the two to mate unless the, wind, the winds are down. It seems that there's any sort of wind, it'd be really hard to do. So I don't know sure how that's even accomplished today, but this seems like really cool technology. It seems like something they're going to be using yeah. in the future. And I've seen a few um, videos. There are some on YouTube, not not so many, but there's a few videos of wind turbine installations. And uh, usually they have got like a crew inside the the hub waiting there for the blade to come, and they, they you know they they grab it. <laughs> the, the last bit is them them grabbing. I'm not saying that you know they're not like carrying the the wind turbine, <laughs> but they are guiding the you know the last little bit of precision that's yeah. needed to get all of, because there's a bunch of bolts that need to line up with a bunch of holes um, with not very big tolerances, and that is manpowered at the at the moment and they must no, have right. really it must be really hard to do that with there's any wind at all so yeah uh, i think this technology could help yeah has to be well then i think the other thing this this technology gets rid of is the tagline thing or so you you have people hanging on ropes trying to pull the load around and hold it like like we see in a lot of different 
means of construction where you got a couple of guys on the ground. If it's windy, they're, they have some ropes and are holding onto the load to make sure it doesn't rotate. That would go away. So it, from a safety standpoint, safety standpoint, that would make a lot of sense. You know, get rid of people being directly around a very heavy load, particularly when it's windy. So it's a really cool technology. I, th- I thought I mentioned it to you because yeah, it's from Australia. No, so um, there you go. Well, they'll go check it out and maybe they'll offer yeah, you to go over. I'll make a, go visit it. Make one yeah, of your famous video YouTube videos. If I can go It'll, watch an installation. Break the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. Thank you for showing me. That would, that would yeah. be really cool. So that, that's our program for today. Uh, thank you for joining Uptime. Check us out on YouTube. And while you're there, Go watch Engineering with Rosie. She has some really cool videos out. The the last one with, with Glenn Ryan, which is fantastic. So you can see Glenn in person. Uh, and, uh, you know, check us out on, on your favorite podcast platform. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, you name it. And so join us next week on the Uptime Podcast. <laughs>